Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to be Human. This is your host, poet, and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. We have another one of those exciting interview segments. As you know, it's always a, a chore to get folks, but it's probably more now than ever before with the pandemic. But, hey, we've been blessed uh, uh, by uh, uh, Alexandra Goodwin, if not by God, to finally have a, a, another wonderful individual here on, on the show, Okay. She, she hails as a transplant from Buenos Aires, Argentina, so English is not her first language, but you can definitely hear her clearly because she's a fluent English speaker. Uh, she is a poet and a novelist. She has a number of books out, even one in Spanish, which is really great to, to hear about. Okay, A lot of her poems have showed up in the, the Miami Herald, uh, Dare to be Authentic, Volume 1, The Light Between Us, Live, Love, and Laughter. That's one of my favorite titles, a, a pan anthology. Okay, and our town news. She, she lives here in, in, now in, in Florida, and I want to welcome her to the show there, Al- Alexandra Goodwin. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. It really is my honor. Well, we're definitely excited to have you. I'm really excited first to have you on Aerial Chart with some of your wonderful work. I, I didn't want to mention it before. I wanted it to be a surprise for the show, but your poem about the uh, the bird... Uh, that one actually is is now uh, in the top ten of our reading list for the for the uh, for the journal. So oh, wow. it just landed this morning as number ten of that list. So I That's mean that cool. usually whenever somebody gets on that list, uh, the way the the system works is is that they've had to have at least two hundred people read the poem for it to very barely get at the bottom of the list. So you're now just slightly over that. That's wonderful news. It took yeah, about I, took about a week and a half, but yeah, everybody has a different you know pace of way that works out. But it's still pretty quick for you, so we're really happy to see that. Thank you. Very nice. Yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. So it's always a, always a good thing. It doesn't always work well with the show because you never know when someone's going to land on that. I had I had one girl one time, and it didn't happen until weeks after she was on the show, and then I had another person where it was on for the whole week, and then by the time I recorded the show, it dropped off. <laughs> oh. So, you just, you know, because other people will come up with, you know, uh, marketing their own stuff or just the way things change on the Internet. You just you just never know how, how it flows. You just never know. Yes. I suppose that people want to um, take a break from the pandemic and the bad news, and... Um, they probably are happy to just get in my garden and listen to that mockingbird that inspired me to write that poem. Um, you know, living in Florida, we only live six miles away from the beach. And you know when is the last time we went to the beach? About five years ago. I mean, like, that's something incredible. You know, you would think that you go more often. But really, um, 
the beach is not that friendly to people who don't live on the beach. You have to find parking. Many times there is no parking. There are no facilities in many places. So in the end, you know, you end up going to your garden and having a good time and finding there what's, you know, what's there to love about Florida. I I agree. It's really about, in the end, what makes a person comfortable and comfort really changes by who we are and maybe sometimes even by the age we are. I mean, I'm like like you now where I used to be a regular visitor and now unless my kids, uh, you know, they go now and then and then I'll go with them. But it's never the convenient experience it used to be because even when you have a fully equipped beach and even when you have a place that has good parking – I mean, it takes like 10 miles to get to the bathroom. I mean, how's that yeah. supposed to be a fun experience? You know, yeah. my kids yes. are like, I'll just go in the ocean. Well, that you could do that, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah, right. So you're right. You're definitely right about that. And I know in terms of being creative, you can have great thoughts. And I'm glad, glad I have the phone to write them in there because I wouldn't be able to write otherwise because you're just sitting there with sand in your butt and you're sweating to death. I don't, I don't yes. know how that's supposed to be great for creativity. I mean, other people... Maybe that's a good thing for them. And, you know, just like people, they sit there and they read a book. I can't read a book when, when I'm burning to death, you know? Right. And, and you do. You burn, in, you burn in, in the beach in Florida. It's, there is no respite, especially in the summer. Well, we've had a very wet summer this year. Um, I haven't even used my pool because it rained every single day. And by the time I work from home, by the time I left my office at home and I wanted to go to the pool... It was raining, so, um, you know, it was a summer unlike any other, and we've been holding our breath for the coming hurricanes that yeah. threaten all the time. All the time. Yes, yes. No no doubt about it. All right, so I wanted to, uh, and it's up to you, but it, it's just seemed to me that the arc of your personal story, which connects in many ways to your writing, would be the best way to start about, you know, when you grew up in Argentina and, and, and maybe some of your experiences there and possibly why you, you felt you needed to move to come to, to America? Um, my story um, is like many other immigrant story. Um, and it's a sad story in a way, uh, but with a good ending. You know, it's not easy to leave the country of your birth. It it doesn't matter what happens there. It's just not easy to pick up and uproot yourself and start somewhere else where you don't know a soul, you don't know the uh, language, even though I knew English, but it wasn't the same. And... um, I was not going to come here to the States in the first place. Um, my father was a stockbroker, and I worked with him because I, when I finished high school, I wanted to go to university, and I wanted to study literature. And my father says to me, you're not going to be able to make a living being a writer. So... Pick, pick something else. And my other love was biology. So I said, okay, fine, I'll be a biologist and I'll write on the side. And in order to get inside in, into the university, you had to uh, sit for an exam, the entrance exam. 
and I failed it. But I really didn't fail it. They failed me. And nobody could believe how I had failed an entrance exam to the university because I, I had been the valedictorian of my high school. So they said, how can you, of all people, not be able to get in? Well, one of the reasons was um, there were about 5,000 applicants and only 50 available spots in the university. So I was, I didn't have a chance, even if my marks, if my grades were good, if my score was good or high enough, I just didn't have a chance. Why? Because only the people who were related to somebody in the government were the ones who got in. So the first year I lost and I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? So my father says to me, you know what? Why don't you come and work in the office with me? I said, but I don't like business. And he said, nah, come, you know, it's life skills. You'll be able to make a living. And so I said, okay, I will do that, but I will study at night. I will go to a, an institute where they, they'll prepare me for a year to sit for the exam again because I really want to do either biology or literature. So the first year I, I um, worked with my dad and his business grew. He was a very successful stockbroker. Second time again I flunk and I'm like okay so what can I do with my life now? I didn't want to go study at night again. I knew all the material. I knew that I had not really flunked the exam. So I said, you know what, maybe I should go with the flow. So I stayed with my dad and um, he had a lot of employees. And one day he was out to lunch with some clients and a client calls the office and he says to me, go, go get your dad. I said, well, he's having lunch at so and so, such and such restaurant. He says, I don't care, just go. So I went downstairs and, you know, in downtown Buenos Aires in the Wall Street dis district, you people walk, you know, so it's like New York. So I went walking and I see in a kiosk, you know, where they sell newspapers, um, I grabbed the newspaper that was handed to me by the newspaper man, and in the headline it says, uh, fraud in the stock exchange. And I start reading, and my father's name is there, and my name is there, in, in the front page of the newspaper. Wow. Like, we committed fraud. And my, I, I thought, I honestly thought, that I was gonna die. I started running to the restaurant and by the time I got there, the ambulance was already taking my father out. He had had a heart attack because somebody had told him about it. And um, then it went downhill from there. My father lost his business. Uh, he was accused of uh, doing fraud, even though he didn't. And the reason why was because this happened all at the same time as the uh, military uh, coup happened. 
and they were trying to divert the attention of the public by creating a, 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 a veil of, you know, scandal so that people wouldn't think about all the abuses that the military was doing and all that. Um, we immediately, we got an attorney and, of course, after the investigation that lasted two months or three months, my father was exonerated. He was found not guilty. But by that time, that episode had done what it was um, meant to do, yeah. which was to distract the attention, you know. And in the meantime, now our life was ruined because my father had no more clients. His reputation was shocked, was was um, destroyed, and he he didn't have a livelihood. So at that point, I said to my dad, Daddy, I said, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to go to university for that. You told me not to. I wanted to go to university to study biology. I couldn't get in. I said, this country has taken you and, and, and your reputation down to the toilet. I said, I have no desire of staying in this country. I'm leaving. My father says, where, where are you going to leave? I said, I'm going to go to Israel. You know, we're Jewish. So I had been to Israel four years before doing volunteering work. And um, I said, that's, that, that's where I'm going. Well, you're not going to go there because it's not safe with the bombs and the terrorists and all that. And this was so that you know more or less the time frame is 1980. 1980, more or less. So I said, well, I'm going to go. And for that, he says, well, I'm not paying for the ticket. So at that point, I started teaching math to students, tutoring in my house. And I saved every penny. And with that, after a year, I had enough to buy a one-way ticket to Israel. When we revisited that, that conversation with my family, my father was ready to leave Argentina. He says, you know what? I have no livelihood here. Let's just go somewhere else. And I said, where do you want to go? He says, to the States. I said, I'm not going to the States. I don't like the United States. I'm just going to go to Israel. And the reason why is because I didn't really know anybody here. And, and to me, it was very intimidating to go to the best country in the whole world, to the, to the country of opportunity, which was exactly what I was looking for, opportunities that had been stolen from me for no reason at all. And I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm faced with the opportunity to go to the country of opportunities. And I'm like, I don't know if I am ready for this. So I continued with my idea of going to Israel. I did have my ticket in hand, so my father made a deal with me. He says, if we sell everything and we go to the United States and you come with us, and if you like it, you stay. But if you don't like it, you can leave, and I will not stand in your way. So we came here in December of 1981, and I stayed two weeks, and after two weeks, I said, I'm leaving. So I left. I went to Israel, and my father and my mother and my three sisters stayed here. 
and they began their life here. And uh, and I went to Israel, and I lived there. I backpacked all over Israel by myself, um, and I was able to sustain myself by working in the kibbutz, in different kibbutzim along the way. Uh, I would work during the day, and then I would earn my meal for the day and earn the, the right to have a, a bed you know, to sleep in that night. Mm -hmm. um, that's how I spent six months. Um, I, I went into a kibbutz where I learned how to speak Hebrew, and I did so well with that that after six months, I was offered a job in the Golan Heights to teach English to, to the Israeli children. So the day that I was supposed to go to the interview, that's the day that the, Le the war with Lebanon ex uh, came out. It was July 5th of 1982. There were no buses going up there. Everybody was in shelters. And all my dreams, all my um, plans to stay there were shattered. And I stayed there for another month with family and friends and then my father says you know what it's just time for you to come back so I did I came to the States and I enrolled in university which was easy you know um, I, I, it's so bizarre to me how a country where you're you're from that country and they close the doors on you and then you come to another country and they open up the doors and they they roll the the red carpet. It's just this is such a wonderful country, and I don't know if people really realize that. Um, in any way, uh, I I went to the university, and my father said, "You need to pick a career that in two years you're gonna be able to make a living." Because he had four daughters, and at the time. Being a student on a student visa, we had to pay three times the tuition of people who were from the United, from citizens of the United States. So it became very expensive for my dad to pay for university for all of us. So he says, just pick a career when two years you'll be able to get a job. And so I picked being a executive secretary or legal secretary. And in the meantime, you know, I met my husband, and I, as soon as I graduated, he proposed, and we got married, and then, you know, the rest is history. I established myself here in the country, and I never looked back. Literally, I never looked back. This is my country. This country adopted me. It, it opened up its, its arms, and I would do anything for the United States. Wow. wow. What a, what, what, uh, a story. what a story. Especially, uh, Especially uh, when, you think about when you think about the immigrant, the experience, immigrant experience, sometimes, sometimes we forget, we, forget. Uh, we take for granted that it's not an easy one and that even when people feel that they need to move away, which is a terrible thing to feel and have to go through, that they don't know what's going to be 
on the other side. I mean, you hear a story, you, you, you know, you have a friend tell you this and that, but you don't know what's going to happen to you. I think sometimes, especially here in America, we, we, we forget that, being a nation of immigrants, and many of us have come from the similar experience just maybe 100 years ago, not like in your case where it's far less than that. We, we forget that, maybe just because of our families want to forget that and move on and have their life in America, or maybe it's just as easier to forget that because it's easier to to be mad at people coming to, who also want you know, a, a life of freedom and, and opportunity and, and, and to be in a place where people are not going to knock on the door or, or close you out for your future because of who you are or, or maybe even what, what you practice. We, we, we forget that, that it's not an easy experience and that uh, people are not really jumping up and down. Wow, I can't wait to get there because it's a, it's a scary thing, I can imagine. Yes, yes. It, uh, it was the unknown and you know, we it, it was a country that we looked up to, so it was also the question, can we, are we any match for these American people who are so successful and who are so, you know, they're at the top of the world, and who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm just a little immigrant who comes from a place where, um, you know, we literally failed in a way, you know, not through any fault of ours, um, but you know, you'll be surprised how when given the opportunity and the right set of uh, opportunities, people can, they, they find their way and, um, and they make a life for themselves, you know. Yeah, well, that's really what it's all about in, in America, is the land of second chances, like they say. But I, I tell you, um, as long as you're willing to pick yourself up again, you can have a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. America's always been good about that. It's really about who who wants to grab the prize and what they're willing to sacrifice for it. That's true. And, you know, that's also something that is a good practice for your life, whatever you are. You just, you fall down or they knock you down, you get up, dust off and move on. Don't dwell on what happened. I mean, it would have been so easy for us to just play victim and, and say, you know, look what they did to my dad. You know, my dad, by the way, my father was one of the most honest people that I ever met in my life. And uh, he was accused of doing fraud. I mean, it, it's, and then even though then you, he was found not guilty, you know, this this stain was there. There's always a doubt. It's the doubt in people's mind. Yeah. Well, did he do it or did he, did he not do it? Or, you know, so with that, um, it, it creates a whole new set of um, circumstances under which you have to muddle through life and, and try to, you know, try to make it and try to, Keep your head above water, and just keep swimming, and and, and that's it. Right, and I agree, and I'm really glad that you guys were able to get past that and, and move on and start another life here in America. I, I'm also um, curious, not because I don't know, because I, I'm I'm pretty aware, I've traveled so much and 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 talked to and meet so many people over the course of my life. So I've always known 
that they were Jews that lived in <laughs> South America. But you'd be surprised at how many people are not aware of that because oftentimes the Jewish experience for people who are not Jews tend to be people either that's been living here in America or who have come from from Europe and in some cases from the Eastern Europe or, or from Russia because of, you know, under the under the, the yoke of, of communism back in the day. Uh, we forget that there are Jews all over the place and that there are actually a, a lot that live in, in South America. So uh, it's, it's definitely something I knew that I bet you people who listen to the show are going to take back and say, oh, yeah, that's right. It's funny because, um, uh, you know, I live in, a, in an American neighborhood. The most people, mo- most of my neighbors are American. And my husband is American. <clears throat> He's from New York. Um, but lately there has been some sp- Hispanic people moving in. And, you know, we celebrate the holidays and all that. So, oh, yeah, your husband is Jewish. And I don't say anything, right? They say, yeah, he's Jewish, because he is. But so then they say, well, so how come you marry the Jew? <laughs> they they think that I am not Jewish. They immediately assume that because I came from South America, and they come from South America themselves, but it's not, it, they, it's like there is no acknowledgement that there are Jewish people in, in South America. It's almost like, well, you're from South America, so you must be Catholic. And you must have married a Jew in, here in America. And I'm like, no, I didn't convert. I, you know, I actually, um, it's it's funny because my great grandmother is a descendant from the Jews of Spain of the Inquisition that were expelled back in the Inquisition, and they had to travel, go to a country, any country that would take them and there weren't too many countries that accepted that took the Jewish people who had been expelled during the Inquisition so one of the countries was Italy the other country was Turkey so uh, my my ancestors went to Turkey and they established themselves there so my great-grandmother was Turkish and there was a war in in the 18 18 in late 1800s and she was one of seven siblings, and they were starving to death, literally starving. They had nothing to eat. So her parents, they knew that they were going to die, and they took her. She was the youngest one. She was 13. They put her on a boat towards Argentina, and they said, go, go. She never, ever saw them again. She never saw her family again. She was put in this ship, in this boat, from Turkey to Argentina, and that she was one of the um, immigrants in the 1800s, in the early 1900s, that she landed in the port of Buenos Aires without knowing the, uh, without knowing uh, Spanish, even though she did speak Ladino, which is an ancient form of um, Spanish. And she landed there, and a family took her in. It was all coordinated by Baron Hirsch. Baron Hirsch was a philanthropist who had bought land in Argentina 
with the idea of providing a haven for the persecuted people from uh, Europe. So those lands were away from Buenos Aires. They were out in the country. And the people that came there, that went there, were supposed to work the land. Those were the gauchos judíos. I don't know if you heard of the gauchos judíos. Yes. Um, yes. So my great-grandmother was a gaucho judío. <laughs> she, she was taken in by a family. Uh, she was adopted at 13, and she worked the land. She became a, a peasant, and she worked the land over there, and she got married and had children. And So my mother, even my mother was born in the country, and she, my mother was a, a, a gaucho judío, but... Not in the same sense, because by then, by the time my mother was born, the gauchos judíos uh, weren't anymore. You know, they, <clears throat> they, there had been some uh, climactic um, things going on, that floods and fr uh, frosts, so they destroyed the crops and... They, they couldn't work the land anymore, and then all that went to waste, and people started moving to the city. Um, but that, that was my great-grandmother, uh, who went from, Ar from Turkey into Argentina, and she was part of that wave of Im immigrants, Jewish immigrants, that stayed there. And these immigrants, they were low-key, you know. They didn't want to make waves. They, did, they were afraid. They came from persecution. And their mindset was, well, we're here and let's just work and go about our own business, but we're not going to be making big, um, big waves, you know. Yeah. So. Makes sense. Wow. That's, wow. that's, it's not only just history lesson, but I think in many ways, when you become creative later on, uh, it, it, you could probably draw from some of those experiences or maybe even from some of that of that history to, to help inform you about understanding uh, about not taking things for granted about having more of appreciation from where you're at and, and where people have been before because sometimes here in America uh, when we're writers we don't always get that appreciation we don't always show that as, as much as we should I've traveled so much so I've been fortunate to able to get that appreciation again because if you've lived any time outside America for any period of time, believe me, you appreciate it really quickly. I don't care how nice or modern the country is, yes. things are radically, radically different anywhere you go. And it, it, yes. it takes a while. I, I lived six years away from the United States at one point, and all over the place in the Air Force. And it, it was a great experience and, and a great learning experience. And I never went back until I finished up my service uh, tour. So even coming back, it seemed like a, an adjustment or, or a shock to it all. But you, you, do, you do appreciate it a lot more because things are so different elsewhere because of the way they put together their societies. And as much as I believe, like you, you know, that we have a, a great nation and, and possibly one of the, the freest and the most, most opportunistic lands out there, um, it doesn't mean that anywhere else doesn't have any merit. It's just that they uh, take certain things for granted that that we that we don't and and maybe that's a good thing in a way because 
you know, even just the necessary uh, part of the freedom of speech. A lot of people don't realize that that's not everywhere. And, and even in Europe, there's places you can't speak freely. And, and that's supposed to be a democratic society. It's not the same as here, where we take freedom much, much more seriously than everywhere else. Because so many places around the world, and you can even include Canada in this, uh, to a certain extent, they've traded certain freedoms in order for certain social securities that they get. And I don't mean like social security like in America, but I mean certain securities in, in, you know, in life, like you know, easier education access or maybe free Medicare or something like that. Uh, we don't have here. And uh, that's the trade-off in, in any of these free societies. And it, it's, a, it's a, something to get used to because not every place is, is the same. I lived in Germany for the most of my time as well as all the traveling, but I lived there having a house there and everything. And you, if you went up on the, on the street corner and said Heil Hitler, you automatically get two years in jail without a parole. They just grab oh, you, they just grab you, throw in the cop car, and you're in jail. What, uh, what did he say? We violated the law not mentioning that guy's name. So yeah. even there, and it's a pretty free society, not everything's free. It's a, it's a different place. It's a place where... When you go to the post office, yeah, you can send some letters, and you can also pay your water and your, and your telephone bill all in the same location because everything is centralized. They know yes. they know exactly who you are, what you've been doing, what you've been using, because the government knows everything because that's how it works. It's all one same entity. So just as much as that might be convenient for a population, if they would ever go the same way they went in the past, well, it's also convenient for the government to know everything about you because they do. Mm. Because they do, they know it all. It's not hard. They know exactly when you've been home, what you've been using, what electricity, oh, all of that. Just because that's all the information comes in the same location. So you could go right to the post office, pick up some mail, buy some stamps, pay your electric and your water bill all in the same visit. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it's true, when you mentioned um, being in a place where there is no, no freedom of speech, um, I would like to illustrate that um, my parents, when they were dating back in the, in 19, in the 1950s, uh, Perón was the president at the time, and he was a dictator. And if you did not agree with him, or if you spoke against him, they would immediately arrest you and you would never be seen again, ever. And what they used to do, it was the, the, the time of terror where they used to stop people in the street and separate them. And then one, one officer would say to the person, what were you talking about? And the other officer is asking the same question to the other person. And if their stories did not coincide, they would assume immediately that they were speaking against the government and they would both disappear. That was when my parents were dating and they, they used to tell us stories of, um, you know, that they used to have, they, they used to have these um, answer ready. Oh, we were talking about, you know, that we're going to get married and what furniture we're going to have and where we're going to buy a house or, you know, so the, the story was always the same when they were separated in the street and asked about what they were talking about. So after Peron, uh, after that, 
other governments came and Peron fled. Uh, he fled, he went to Spain and he stayed there in exile. When I was 11 years old, so that was in 1971, one day we were in the car with my sisters and my parents and my parents were whispering and we're like, what are you guys whispering about? Why don't you talk loud? And my parents said, no, because, you know, in the news, they're saying that Peron wants to come back to Argentina, but don't go. And we were like really afraid because we had heard stories about the, the time when Peron had been president. And my father said, but don't worry, that will never happen again. And it did. <laughs> it did happen. You know, the, the, the most unthinkable thing that could have happened, happened. And when he came back from from uh, Spain and he did take over the government, it was, to me, it was like, this is a nightmare. This is like a bad dream because how can this be, you know, that is happening all over again? And that's when Argentina started its downhill again, you know, with Perón and, and his uh, wife. And then he died and then she took over and she allowed all the um, terrorists to 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 actually take over the country and it took the military to save the country again which was you know a, they they did some abuses but i think that they had to do it because they they needed to clean up and you know after the military came and they took over the power there was no more terror you know, I remember we lived in a in a nice neighborhood, and all of a sudden, at 6 a.m., you would hear an explosion, and it was the house down the street that had been uh, planted a, a bomb by a terrorist, and an entire family exploded in the house while they were sleeping, just because they were living in a nice neighborhood, in a nice house. So... You know, we couldn't go to school because uh, <laughs> the, 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 the terrorists would come with guns and, and threaten us and threaten the school with bombs and things like that. So it was um, a time that it's not, I hope it never happens again, even though the government that they have now is of the they they come from Peron, this Peron um, philosophy. So people are not happy there, and a lot of people have immigrate, emigrated to Spain. You know, they can't come here because here is very difficult to have the papers, so that, that's where they go. But that's, you know, a little side uh, side note about dictatorship and you know, when we say here, oh, we can't talk about this and about that, I, we can. If you can say that you can't talk, then you still have freedom. So. Yeah. Yeah. And we and and we do. Uh, yeah. America, especially these days, when when any censorship is going on, it's because they themselves have taken it out of the conversation because. Maybe they don't want their views examined 
or maybe they don't want to upset their family, or, or maybe they just don't want to be bothered with somebody else's opinion. And and, yes. and I'm not saying that's a valid way of doing things, but again, if you're in a free society, you can make that choice as well. And I can't say anything bad about it because that's the choice you made. And maybe you want to live that way. In America, you're free to be stupid and ignorant if you want. Yeah. And we got we got plenty of those people as well. But uh, I, I'm so happier though, because in many ways, you can't only operate as a free person and 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 as an artist unless you have a society that's built on freedom. Because otherwise, you can never really say the things you want to say in, in your writing if you don't because for many yeah. writers they might not be so candid in their conversation i know a guy one time that you can never get anything honest out of him when you talk to him but you read his writing and it couldn't be any more honest because that's yeah. the, that's the way he decided to do things he felt that he had a life where people just wouldn't be able to tolerate truth and if he wasn't going to be able to survive in that life that's what he did but when his writing and his poems, his fiction, his essays, you, you couldn't get any more uh, the opposite of what, uh, where he was. You know, it was almost like he had to telegraph it out to somebody else because he couldn't live that way to where he was. It might be yeah. sad to other people, but again, in the end, those are the choices that we make. Yes. Now, I see here that you've you've written a number of poetry books and, and you even have a, a, a book about uh, photographs and, and a novel. Is your novel about your time in America, or is your novel about the experience in, you know, in Argentina, speaking Spanish and being around people that are, that could be scary? No, uh, my novel is actually um, a journey into my imagination, which I thought I didn't have. And one day I was captured by these, um, you know, my husband and I used to have uh, a business and... Uh, we had, uh, on and off, we had people that worked for us that were immigrants and they were not legal, really. They they didn't have permission to, to work, but we hired them anyway because that's who came to work. Those are the people that showed up. Um, and through meeting these individuals, uh, I heard their stories of how they had crossed the border. So that's what my uh, novel is about. It's about an immigrant who crosses the border illegally from Mexico, and, and, and the act, actual writing of it is based on the first uh, account, first-person account of what I heard of these people when they crossed the border. And um, at the time, I was also obsessed, let's say, with learning the history of Russia, the history of the Tsar and the Tsarina. And, you know, when I get an idea in my head and I obsess over it, I have to learn everything about it. And for many years, all I read was about the Tsar, the Tsarina, how they came about, what happened to them and everything else. And in learning about that, I also learned about what Rasputin, the influence that Rasputin had in in the development of the demise of the Tsar and the Tsarina's family. And 
for some reason, um, one day, you know, I was playing the what if game, and it occurred to me, what if um, an immigrant that comes illegally from the border crosses and all of a sudden becomes Rasputin, you know, could that happen? And it, it, it was a lot of fun to write. Um, he In the book, he does become, Rasputin kind of reincarnates in him. It is a, a transmigration of souls, which is something that I read can happen to people that are alive right now. You don't have to die in order to reincarnate. You can actually... Your soul, if, if, if the soul of a dead person can come back into a live person, not necessarily at birth, but in the middle of that person's life. So the book is about um, Rasputin taking over the body of this immigrant so that he can actually finish the job that he couldn't finish with the... Um, with Izar and the Sarina. So uh, the, the book took a lot of imagination. It took a lot of um, being brave and not have to dismiss myself saying, oh, that's crazy. You know, how can, that, how can you write that? It's like, why not? Let's do it. Let's see what happens. And I had a lot of fun imagining what would happen. And um, it was a very therapeutic thing for me because it made me discover things about myself and, and things about life in general and um, it took me about two years to research and it took another two years to write and then it took a year to revise and, um, and that's what the novel is about um, the uh, poetry book, Whispers of the Soul, I used to go to nature, like when, you know, when I couldn't go to the beach, I decided to then, go, wherever I could go, I would go. And I took pictures of the things that I liked. For example, there is a Japanese garden um, here in Delray Beach that was, it's, it's a piece of land that was donated by um, Mr. Morikami, he was a Japanese citizen, and when he died, he bequeathed his land to the city of Delray Beach. And it's a park where you go there, and, and it's all Japanese um, landscaping, and it's beautiful. It's home to many species of plants, and people go there to recharge their soul. Uh, there are places where you can sit in solitude in a forest of bamboo trees. That is magical. And the cover of the book, of my book, Whispers of the Soul, has that picture of that forest that I took. And I wanted to capture the beauty and of, of that place, the sanctity, and I hope I did, but nonetheless, with the pictures, I was able to spring forward and 
uh, get inspiration to to write the poems that I did. So that's um, that's Whispers of the Soul. And then I wrote the other uh, poetry book in Spanish. Um, and it's funny, you know, because to me now, English is my language. That's, I think in English, I dream in English, but some subjects, if I have to talk or to write about something that is from, that it gets inspiration from my life before I came to the United States, that that thought comes in Spanish, believe it or not. It's incredible. So when I have to talk about friendship, the real friendships, you know, when, when you're a little kid and you have friendships or you talk about your grandmother when she was alive, all that came to me in Spanish. And I didn't want to stop it and, and force myself to write it in English. So I started writing in Spanish as well. And when I had enough poems, I decided to compile them into a book. No, I think it makes I think it makes a lot of sense actually. I've I've heard it before. And, and by the way, what's the name of the novel? Uh, the novel is called Exchange at the Border. Okay, Exchange at the Border. All right, thank you very much for that. I I thought it was very original. I haven't heard any of that kind of combination before, so I think it's great. That's really what imagination is all about: is to do something that no one's really thought about before and, and, and see how it plays out. So I think that's definitely great. But I've known a number of people that, uh, just like yourself, when it came time for them to put together a, a, a writing project about something that was before their arrival in a, in a new place, they they went back to the, uh, the original language because they, they felt that uh, their memories would serve them better that way, and therefore, whatever they they were inspired to and even dreaming about, wind up coming up in that language anyway. So there's, there's a logical thing to it. I think it makes sense. Yes, um, and I am working on a memoir uh, as well, which I've been working on it since I came to this country because I had to write. To, to me, coming here was so traumatic even though it ended up being a good thing for me and played out very well in my life, um, you know, the, the uprooting was very traumatic. And I always wanted to write the story that I told you about with my father and all that. Yep. And I never really allowed myself to be honest. With what, if, what, if, what are people going to think? What if they don't believe me? What if they think that my father did it? And what if... And it's like, whatever happened, like 30 years later, I was taking a workshop in online in Spain of therapeutic writing because I really needed to get it out of my system. And I, um, it was for a year, and I, through that workshop, I was able to write down things as if nobody's ever going to read it. And it was in Spanish. The, the course was in Spanish, so I was able to write in Spanish. And my teacher used to tell me, write as if nobody's going to read it. I'm like, I can do that. And when I did, um, now is my memoir, and I hired her. I've been working with her for three years now to 
to guide me on how to structure every every um, stage of my life up until my coming here. And it's been a very good experience for me, uh, but it is in Spanish. So when people ask me, well, what are you working on? It's like, what, are we going to have a book soon, you know, that you can... Well, not unless you you read in Spanish, you know, but and then I'm thinking, should I have it translated? I don't know if how that I don't know if I would translate it. I think I would like to hire somebody from the outside, somebody who can actually literally translate not just the words that are written, but the the overall feeling of what I wanted to say you know, to capture the essence of what is written and then be able to say it in English with the same eloquence that it came in Spanish. That's not a, uh, that's not an easy thing, but it's definitely possible. I, I know from speaking to people that when a translation happens from a literary work, uh, like a piece of fiction or a poem, it's extremely difficult to capture everything about that poem or, or even that that person in the translation. It's what they originally called the lost in translation situation. Yeah. But I also found that people who wrote in nonfiction, uh, oftentimes an article or even in your particular case, a memoir, it's easier to do the translation because many a times nonfiction it doesn't really capture all of the art and poetry of what a person is trying to do because it's usually trying to just capture you know the feelings the imagination or maybe just the facts of a situation so it might be an easier thing to get done than if you did a poem yeah. book yeah yeah um i i translated a book of poems from an author in mexico um she contacted me one day and uh, from Mexico and she said that she had heard about me and all that and she says I I know that you're very proficient in English and it, of course your native language is Spanish would you mind translating my poetry into English and at first I said no I'm like I can't I I can't translate and she, through talking to her, I said, you know what, send me the book, because it had already been uh, published traditionally in Mexico. So I said, send me the book, I'll read it, and I will tell you if I can do it or not. And uh, I did. I, I ended up translating it. But it was um, it was a beautiful experience, because I was in constant contact with her. Asking her for things that, uh, me as a reader, I would say this is what I get out of this particular stanza or this particular line. Is that true? Is that is that what you wanted to convey? And um, so you know, it, it, it was a collaboration between her and I, and it was very nice, very fulfilling to bring that book into the English speaking. Uh, readership so yeah I, li I like that and, and I, I think whenever a person can lend hand on something like that it's 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 a great thing it's just not a it's not an easy thing I mean I, no. I, I think the nonfiction just simply translates better than than anything else that, yes. that, that that's out there because all the other stuff you know uh, 
people forget, uh, regardless of what language they're writing it in, that uh, a piece of fiction or a piece of poetry has so many different uh, cuts and turns and so many different nuances and so many different double and sometimes triple meetings, so many different personal elements that is simply not going to get done or even understood by the translator who's simply looking at a word exchange more than anything else. Yes. So no, no doubt about that. You know, I wanted to talk about, too, because you're the first person I ever had on the show, because uh, I don't even know what this is about. I mean, I understand it academically, but I don't understand creatively. You did an adult coloring book with haiku. <laughs> What's that about? Um, I, I had captured moments of um, in my garden, you know, with haiku uh, poems. And one day, I had a, I realized that I had a lot of haiku poems. I had a lot of, um, or a lot of them. And I said, you know, I would like to put them in a book. But because they are only three lines, I didn't want to put two or three haikus per page, um, because I, I, I wanted this how special each one was. Each. Each one captured a moment, and I wanted the reader to be able to stay in that moment and not be distracted by another moment that's written below, and then another moment that is written below that. I wanted each moment to be unique, so I wanted it to be one haiku poem per page. So I said, well, these haikus are going to be lost in one big page. And um, and I had the idea of illustrating them, and I can't draw if my life depended on it. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, so I had to find an illustrator, and that that was a great experience. Um, I I went about interviewing different people, finding them online, and sending them two or three haikus that, in my opinion, were extremely difficult to conceptualize in a drawing. So when they sent me back these drawings, I'm like, oh, no, I don't, I don't know if I like this. You know, this drawing doesn't really, it doesn't do it for me. It does not really accompany the haiku until I found... Uh, a young girl, a young woman, and she sent me, when when she sent me the picture, what she drew about the, the drops of rain falling on the roof, I said, that's my girl, that's it. That's, that's who's going to be able to illustrate the book. So I hired her, I sent her all the haikus, and she sent me back the each illustration. Um, very few times did I have to converse with her about it and to tell her to change something, but for the most part, it was all the illustrations are her creation. Um, they are her style, and I, that's another reason why I hired her is because her style was different from the regular uh, coloring books that you find nowadays, where there is, you know, very intricate drawings and I just wanted something that was more pleasing to the eye 
and um, it, she ended up being an art student from Argentina. So, wow. go figure. She she spoke perfect English. Here we are conversing in English and and doing everything in English, and she and en she ended up being from Argentina. And um, that's she sent them to me, and then I put them together, and I put together the uh, the book of haiku coloring book. All right, that's that's, that's really interesting because I've never had anyone do that uh, before. Now it makes sense about how how you came to it because I wasn't sure about well maybe she knows something about art too because you you find that a lot of writers. Uh, not just write. Sometimes they have other talents, and they sometimes can mix them into the writing, almost like mixed media, you know. And so I wasn't sure if if you were also doing the art or or how they came about. So I, I appreciate you letting us know about that. It's certainly something I haven't heard done before, but it, it makes it makes a lot of sense to me um, because if you feel that much strong about the the writing especially a haiku which in many instances i've always felt um can be very powerful if it's done in, in the right way you know what i mean yes uh, like a lot of like a shot of espresso from turkey because I, I lived in turkey at one point and if you get a shot of espresso over there i'm telling you you're you're, you're up for the whole day wired running around Cause, cause <laughs> yes. it's, no, it's no joke it's nothing like anything in the world you drink some of this turkish espresso and you're gonna be flying around. You you won't yeah. you won't need drugs or alcohol to drink the coffee, yeah. and that's all you're gonna need. So it, yeah. it's sort of like that. And um, I, I I like that when people can do something in different or maybe in many ways find different avenues for the for the writing. I'm not saying we all have to do that because not all of us are, are, are interested in that, or not even all of us have other talents other than writing. I'm one of those people that that's it for writing. I'm not dancing. I'm not singing. I'm not drawing. <laughs> that's, none of that's happening ever, you know. But uh, right. but I can easily see in how it could be done. I mean, I always like the idea of people trying to put a, a poem inside of a poster or even in an art painting. I've seen a few people do that, something small, you know. Uh, so why why couldn't this be be done? And there's nothing wrong with it. I, I really think that in many ways, it, it gives. A, a new uh, a new life to, to writing other than just being on a page. Exactly, and and you said it. It gives it a new life. And personally, I wanted to bring haiku more to people who otherwise would never have read haiku a haiku poem. They wouldn't have, but they would go. They would be attracted to a to a book of illustrations, and while they're painting. They are reading the haiku, so that's that that attracted me the the idea of combining the two arts so that I could you know bring poetry to people who otherwise they would not have read poetry. Yeah, it's, it's another way of looking at it as well. Is is it? It's a almost like a, a an advertising tool to draw somebody over to the writing that normally that might not have been really checking out before. You know, yes. it's it's part of what I do with Aerial Chart because I had a conversation about this uh, the other day with somebody, and I just reminded them. I said, "Listen, I I'm very happy that the writers like the art that we're trying to pair with their writing, but ultimately the art is about the reader. I'm trying to get the reader more involved 
by creating an environment that makes them more welcome to come to the site and check out everybody's work. And maybe if they check out their work, they might check out the artist. Maybe even buy something that the artist has, has written, you know, in, in the past or, or you know, in the, in the present. But it all starts with whether we like it or not, and whether it, it's it's simply a, a, a prejudgment or not. It all starts with an image, because on the internet things can go fast, and if people feel comfortable about, wow, I like that image, maybe I should go check out their writing, and then they read it and they go like, wow, this is great. That's the whole purpose of it all. It's it's like a signpost that's pointing them in the right direction, because otherwise they might not know that direction. Yes, right. So I spend I spend time on making sure that we try to get the best thing we can for the writing that that's been given. It takes a moment sometimes to do, but I always felt that as an editor, it was my job to try to make sure that what I'm putting over there wasn't just, hey, Alice, I, I published your poem. I hope you like it. Have a good day. I'm going to go have a sandwich now. Versus, <laughs> yes, I picked your poem because I read it and I liked it, and I also believe that I got a piece of artwork that I could put to it that makes it sort of a package that when someone visits us, they're happy about what we've done. Not just the writing, but the experience of it all. You're trying to give people a little bit of an experience. Yes, and it's wonderful that you provide that, you're, you know, because um, it's you're actually providing a very uh, a, a needed service to people so that they can read and experience literature that otherwise they maybe they wouldn't go to a to a bookstore and buy a book of poetry, but they are there. They are in the site, and if they are reading a nonfiction piece from your magazine, and then all of a sudden they stumble upon a poem, well, well let me check this out, and it's there. And I saw also that you pair the um, the the pieces that you publish with pictures and photographs that are very appropriate to the to what's written. So that's really nice that you do that. Well, the reason I do it, and I mentioned to you the reason already, but the, the biggest reason of all is the very foundation of why I wanted to go into the journal in the first place, because I've had experiences in the past being an assistant editor and a contributing editor and all of that to where... I never felt that the places I, went, that I was at were doing all the things that I wanted to see get done. And when you're in a position to where you're the third or you're the fourth of the person in the room, no one's really listening to you. They don't really care what you have to say because they're running the show and that's how it is. So there's a point where you stay to gain experience and you stay to gain some knowledge and then there's a point where you will stay too long if you just don't go out and do what you think should be done. And many of the things that I do in Aerial Chart, particularly with the imagery and the art, simply are not done a lot. And it wasn't done in any of the places that I was at. You know, that costs too much money, Mark. Uh, that's a lot of extra work, this and that and whatever. I'm like, what is the point of doing all of this? sticking it someplace whether it's a piece of paper or, or, or a digital page and then you what you have to hope to god that somebody might come by and, and how are you going to ask them to promote it from you when you haven't given them something interesting enough to promote so it just made no sense to me 
what they were doing. And I said, when I get mine together, I'm not going it this way. I'm going to make sure I have a nice site that, that has the flexibility to get this. And I'm going to go get these fixtures. And I'm going to put them on there no matter what it takes, no matter how long it takes. That's the reason why I have a rolling uh, production line. It's something that's also different than other places. Where other places will tell you on the first of the month, the 87,000 pieces of, uh, of poetry and, and fiction we accepted will all show up at the same time. Have a good day finding it. Take care. Bye. What we do is we simply say, yeah, it starts at the beginning of the month, but you might not see yours for a week or two because as we're going along putting it out there, we're actually carefully considering what you wrote, what artwork might fit. Can we make sure that nothing's spelled wrong? Can we make sure we have a bio at the bottom that people can understand and maybe even connect to on other things? We're making it a real experience. It might take a little longer, but in the end, I think that it becomes... A better experience and the reason why five years later we have over a half a million people that have read our works which is a pretty big number in this particular uh, business is because there's there's something there that people don't mind sharing with somebody else electronically or otherwise because they feel proud of everything that's being done uh, on their behalf and because they're able to do that guess what that spills over to somebody else there's somebody every time, Alexandra, that comes to Aerial Chart that says, I don't even know who Alexandra Good Goodwin is. And I don't even know if I care. But because I'm here to visit somebody else, I'm going to go check out what other people are doing too. And you have the spillover effect of they didn't know who you were 10 minutes ago and they're like, wow, I like this lady too. That's another good way to also allow other people to work with each other without even realizing they work with each other. And it'll be happening with you. They're going to look at your bird prom. Oh, my God, this is on the top ten list. Why? They're going to read it and go, hey, this is great. And next thing you know, they're going to look at other stuff on the site, maybe even other of your poems they didn't think about before. Again, it works that way. And because it works that way, one person who's supposed to be there just for one poem they might want reading five and ten poems. I am very grateful and very honored to be portrayed in your magazine um, because to me is is an accomplishment, but more than anything, is it, it's it's you know I'm I have gratitude that you are there to recognize the hard work of people like me and like me many others many many others there's a lot of talent out there and it honestly i'll tell you the truth yes i've been persistent in my life i've been sending out sending out but at the end of the day i think it's also a matter of luck um my poems probably were sent at the right time to the right person and um and i'm very happy that uh, I, I can enrich your magazine and your publication with what i write well you so. definitely do and i'm, and I'm so grateful for it, especially for you coming on the show as well kind of telling your story letting some people see sort of like a behind the scenes of who alexandra is and what her work's all about and, and that that's very important in its own self but we're an international literary journal too so it, it's really important for me to make sure that I'm finding some people that can write well, that can tell an interesting story, and that other folks are going to check out. Because in the end, too, 
for a lot of people here in America on the literary scene, we need to go beyond just America. And I'm not saying that by doing this, we forget about America, but we also remember that there's a world out there. And one of the things I discovered when I visited that world is that a lot of people didn't have a good impression of America. They liked the TV shows, and they liked Americans when they met them, and they even liked the movies, and they liked a lot of things about America on paper, but the things they heard about America, well, they didn't like that very much, that we didn't care about the world, that we just thought America was the only place, and that's it. And because of that, that gives us a bad image. And in many instances, sometimes that causes you, when you go someplace, to not always get the best welcome. So I always said to myself, well, when I put together this journal, I want it to be international, and I want to have the same standard for everybody. So the guy that writes from Turkey, and I got people that do, he's going to get just as much of a good experience as anybody else that's going to be on that site. And because of that, maybe it gets them a little better impression about, well, maybe somebody there in America does care. Maybe they're not all a bunch of jerks over there. Maybe I'm happy that they're free, but, you know, don't treat me like I'm a criminal. Those are some of the feelings that people have. Not, not, not always true, but in the end, if people perceive that, that starts becoming a bit of their truth. And we need to do whatever we can in America, especially in the arts, for people to understand that, yeah, we could be that way sometimes. Any country has its flaws and its problems and, and, and difficulties difficult people but as a national attitude nobody's writing off the world just as much as some people don't understand america maybe just sometimes we don't always understand the world americans don't travel as much as i wish they would but i do and i definitely felt the burden that after traveling to 32 countries i've been in the war and everything well why not be able to show at least somebody here in america understands a little bit more about what's going on beyond our shores. Yes. Have you ever traveled to Argentina? No, no. I've never I've never been to, to South America or Central America. The only place I've ever been below America is Mexico. I've been there a couple of times. But no, I've never gotten the chance to it because most of my travels had to do with Europe and Asia and, and, and the Middle East. I went to Israel and, and Egypt. Oh, wow. Yeah, well... Argentina is very European, so um, if you ever go there, you will see you you're gonna feel uh, a mixture between Britain and France and Spain and Italy. All these four countries have main they are the main immigrant groups that formed uh, Argentina, the Argentinian society. Um, so there is a lot of influence from all those countries in food, in architecture, in culture. So um, for visitors, for visiting, it's a very nice, interesting country. You, you, you get to learn a lot. You get to be exposed to a lot of uh, different idiosyncrasies. And uh, the food is excellent. Um, but yeah, if, if you ever have a chance, uh, don't, don't go now. Wait until the pandemic is over. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> yeah. that, that is true. Um, I, God knows I love it. There's so many other places I still like to see in the world. But um, one of my goals is um, 
in the next couple of years to, to get back to Italy because I, I have children. I'm, I'm one of those people that um, I married much later in life. And so uh, I'm a much older person. And in fact, I'm in a community where we go to the store with my children and they think they're my grandchildren. Because I'm a much older man than I am with kids that are still in school. I mean, yeah. I have a 13-year-old. He just turned 13 yesterday. And, and a 16-year-old. So, yeah, and yeah exactly. So um, I like for them to see. Uh, we, we traveled a few places already, but I like for them to see Italy one day. So the next time I do a big travel thing, that's what we're going to do is for them to actually see that before they go to, to college and, and, and you know, ha- have their own lives. So that will be a great thing to, for them to do. But, um yeah, there's still a lot more I want to do, but I probably won't be able to do it until much later once these kids are out of here. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and yeah. I'll, I'll be, I definitely want to see a, a, a few more things out there. That That's for sure. You know, um, and, and I'm excited to do that. I loved uh, traveling. Uh, we still do some traveling here. It's mostly in the United States, though, but we've we've gone to Canada a few times here, and, and we've gone to the, to the Caribbean a couple of times with, with cruises and everything. We yes. visited Bermuda and the Bahamas, so that was fun. And um, so, yeah, definitely, I, I would I would love to do that. I know that's a particularly interesting country there, Argentina, because I know there's a big Italian population there. A lot of people with the last name Rossi live there, so I always thought that was funny and uh, and cute. And, and I also know that there's a a, a, a good size a, a Jewish population still there. And and also Argentina is extremely well read and literate. People are very literary there. Yes, yes, it is. It, it's very, and that that was one of the things I didn't like about Florida. I found it to be too beachy, like people were too much into the beach, like uh, you know, flip flops and shorts and t-shirts and and over there were very formal. Like if we go, you don't leave your house unless you're dressed up. It doesn't matter where you go. You can go to the grocers. You can go to the supermarket. But, you know, you you get dressed up. And here I found it a little bit like, oh, you know, I put makeup on to just go to my mailbox outside my yard and uh, pick up my mail. So, um, but yeah, Argentina is very cultured. And uh, that was one of the things that I missed coming to Florida and um, I for a while I didn't like it like I. I incorporated Florida as part of the United States, and as such, it was a great thing. Yes, I'm in a different country, and I'm in a good country and all that. But the culture shock was very evident living in Florida, not to mention that Argentina has the four seasons, and here is always hot, always, always hot. You may get one or two months of cold weather, and when I say cold, it's just... um, long sleeve t-shirt you know uh so in the beginning i didn't like florida uh, but then i learned to love it and i fell in love with the everglades and that's what really made me actually bond with my new land um i actually did that through reading many um marjorie keenan rawlings i read the yearling and she's, you know, she's in that novel, she describes Florida living from the central Florida area. And to me, it was like, you know, she, 
you can glorify living with mosquitoes and alligators, or you can actually hate it and describe it that way. But it's all in the way that you describe it that you're going to sell the idea to the reader. And through reading that, that novel, that classic, I said, I'm lucky. What am I complaining about? I'm living in a place where, you know, Miss Rawlings put Florida in the map. And, um, and I asked my husband one day to take me to the Everglades. And uh, when he did, I fell in love with it. And I said, that's it. That's, this is my place now. So, you know. Yeah, it's always a culture shock whenever you go someplace, uh, even if you don't intend to live there long, even if just just living there, you, you got to make a, a, a adjustments in order to not only not stand out, but also so that you can make life, uh, if not bearable, you know, at least at least survivable. I mean, it, it's it's definitely a, a a different thing. I am a person from New Jersey, so uh, we're all about the four seasons. And, and I miss that the most because I've traveled so many around the world. And I used to live in Arizona for years. And there's there's no really four seasons there. It's just simply summer and winter, which is almost yeah. which is almost the same. The difference between summer and winter in Arizona is about 50 degrees. You know, oh. it's 120 in summer and it's about 70 <laughs> in, 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 in the winter. That, that's, that's, that's about it, you know. Uh, so it's not the same at all. I, uh, but I, when I lived in Germany, it was very similar. You know, it was mostly cold all year round. You get maybe six or seven weeks of the summer, which is about 80 degrees, which, believe it or not, in Germany is like you're, you're taking all your clothes off practically. You know, oh, wow. yeah, it's like, oh, my God, it's 80. I'm dying. You know, oh. yeah, but it's all relative to where you're at, because once once I left uh, Germany for a little while to go to Norway, uh, I was mm -hmm. I was dying. Uh, I'm people. I'm talking to people, and they're like, "You must not be from around here." I'm like, <laughs> "I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm American, but I live in Germany." They go, "Okay, yeah. well, what you need to do is you need to have three layers on. You need to have a shirt, and then another shirt on top of that, and then have a coat. And even with three layers, 30 degrees below zero still went right through my entire body. Wow! But people there in Norway, when it's like 15 degrees above, they they, they still have a t-shirt on walking around. Oh my God! Can you, yeah. I can't imagine those people traveling to Florida. Then. I don't. I, I don't even know how they would do it. But that, that was that, that, that was them. normal for them. It didn't even start getting cold there until like 20 below. Then they would actually wear a coat. But underneath the Ooh. coat, it would still be just a light shirt. Nothing. Nothing yeah. big. Yeah. I'm over there taking off 29 things just to be able to eat dinner, and and they're looking at you. They, they stare at you like, oh yeah, you're definitely from not around here. If it, yeah, it's just a, it's, but it's all relative to what you're used to. And that's the whole thing. They're used to that. If I lived there long enough, I would probably get used to that too. I mean, I lived in Germany a long time, and it's not it was not hard to get used to the weather over there. It never really got too cold, but it never ever got too hot either. You know, so yeah. it, it's kind of like you know, almost like moderate all the way around. You never really get. I mean, you get some snow. It doesn't last long. You know, right. so that's that's really it. You know, the snow doesn't last long. The summer doesn't last long. Not a whole lot of things last long in Germany, other than the beer. You drink it. If mm. you drink enough beer, it'll last long. <laughs> yeah. That's about it. Yeah. So yeah. it's really about that. I, I, 
I like Florida a lot, but I, I can tell you that um, many of the people I know that 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 live there, uh, they they go there for the particular reason of that after spending a lifetime around the different places that they've been, you know, it being relatively, you know, warmer all the time was good for some people's health, sometimes good for their own mental health being, you know, uh, uh, with the occasional, of course, hurricane, uh, Florida is, is is a pretty normal place for, for most people. I don't know if I would call it the place that you get all your creativity from, but... I, I, I do, I do, because when I think of creativity, I don't think of Florida, you know, not, not nothing against them. But um, I, I see why people want to go there. And God knows we visited a number of times there. I brought the kids to SeaWorld. We brought them once to Disneyland. They'll never go again because it was boring and expensive. At least with SeaWorld, you get a lot of fun animals you can check out. Yeah. yeah. It's funny that you mentioned creativity in Florida because I always thought that creativity came from being in a room with a view. And I always bugged my husband, I need a room with a view so that I can write. And he's like, you can write, you just need to sit down and, and get inside of yourself and write. And that's how, and, and for years I've been using the excuse, I don't have a room with a view, I can't write, I, you know. Um, I need to be able to see something so that I can get my inspiration. And in reality, I learned that you can get inspiration and you can be creative if you apply certain um, techniques that have nothing to do with the environment and with the place where you're at. You just allow yourself to get inside of yourself and see what you can find yeah i think we probably make too much of a location because we get romantically involved and in what other people have said or maybe even what we envision but where it comes to creativity the truth has always been boring but it's simply the truth you bring your creativity with you where you go and if that means that you have to make adjustments in your life well that means that you're going to make adjustments in your habits in order to be creative again it's simply about making those adjustments those are harder than, than than most people realize i remember distinctly using a pen and paper for years when i was writing particularly when i was living in europe i mean i would actually be in the bar sometimes i just write down something quickly that came to me you know probably think people think you're weird and you just throw it back in your pocket you know where i, I have a much much different life now being a uh, somebody that's a, a father and a husband and I have children like that so I have different time periods and different times when things are quiet and different times when they're not so now using my phone and the notes to write becomes more more possible and, and, and more practical than anything else than to always have a piece of paper and, and a pencil around I don't like doing that anymore I'd rather just write on the phone you know I got a, a column in the Indian publication that I write for five years now, almost every single column in five years have been written on my phone. Oh, wow. How, how do you write on your phone? I, I have a notes section, and I just simply write there. Where, and I found that in many instances, I write better and faster on the phone than I do anywhere else. So I just oh, wow. kept, I kept doing it as a habit. And, and what you do afterwards is once you're done, you transfer that into an email file. You email it to yourself. And then once it comes to your email, I just transfer it onto a Word document. And from there, 
I can finish it. I can do the editing. I can do everything else that's necessary for it to become something real, especially when it's a column. And then I just send it off to my Indian editor. So it's it's oh, a little wow. bit of a process, but I found that the since the phone is the thing that's with me all the time because I use it for so many different things for work, for creativity, for my uh, podcast, for everything really. Why not just use it for writing? So now wherever I'm at, I, I could be at a lunch break in some place that's not my house. I could do some writing or maybe put down some notes. You know, I don't want to sound weird, but sometimes you're in the bathroom. You might be there longer than you expected. This is a good time to put a couple notes down because I got the phone with me. So wherever it is, you know what I mean? I, I did it one I did it one time in the bathtub. I just leaned over and started like typing stuff. So That's yeah, because I'm gonna have the phone near me anyway. I can't do it in the shower because that that's just simply not gonna work. But um, right. But in most places you could you could do that. So that's what's worked for me. I don't go on advocating that for everybody or promoting it. Do the phone, it's great. But for me, I found that with my lifestyle and all the things I was doing, that the common denominator was I had this stupid phone around. I might as well start using it for writing too, and that's what I did. Right. Now, it's yeah, not all great. my writing, but I can tell you right now, I, at least half of the stuff I do either comes from notes that were on my phone or in, either entire columns or half of columns or whatever that I already started writing on there. It's a huge, for me, a huge advantage to stay ahead of things and to stay um, in, in many ways uh, uh, on the edge of stuff rather than I'll just wait home to write that. You know how many times that's happened and then you get home, you don't remember anything anymore. So it's like, no, I'll just put it on my phone and then I can check it out later. It's been a big, a big help. True. Yeah, that's true. Um, it, it, the main thing is that you honored your process of writing. You found what works for you, and that works for you. You honor it, you respect it, you use it, and, and that's what you do. Um, I, I'm a very old-fashioned person, so to me, pen and, pens, pen and paper work. Um, I get stuck when I go in to write something in the computer. I discovered that I first I have to write it in uh, by hand, and I and and then once I transfer it to Word, then I begin the process of reviewing it, and then that's a different process altogether. But the, the, from getting it from me, from my soul onto something in in writing, it has to be done through my hands, through my fingers by writing, you know, because you do it also with your hands and your fingers by tapping on the um, on the cell phone. But I it works for me to do it with pencil and paper. Yeah, and you, you hear a lot of people uh, that, that, that say that. Uh, I did a show, I don't know, maybe two years back, uh, called The Rituals of Writing, and it was about all the different rituals that people had that they used or they even needed, maybe even felt superstitious about, in order to get themselves ready to write and the things that they did. So we have so many different ones. I just mentioned for myself that for me, it's been a real um, evolution from where I started writing to where I am now because now the phone is a big part of it. I still write with, with, with pencil and, and – and, well, I don't use pencils. I hate pencils. Pens, pens and paper. I often just use that in a little notepad when I have to outline a show. And I often have a notebook of different outlines I want to do. I won't type those at all. For some reason, I don't like that idea. I'd rather just see it on the notebook. And then from there, I can put together in my mind what, what kind of show I want to do. So I'll do that way. 
you know, and then of course other ways. I don't like writing directly from the from the laptop at all. Having a blank page in front of me from Word, yes. I might as well just put my fist through the screen because that's not doing me any good. Because I'm yes. a person that I have to have notes and I have to have things that I was thinking about before that helps me remember where I want to go and what I might want to explore. Without that, I can't start with nothing and then somehow something great comes out. I'm not one of those kind of people. I need to have a, a, a bit of a process and a, even a bit of a ritual. And I just learned to travel and to change the rituals to the things that I was doing because your life changes in many ways. And because of that, I, I had to have the changes along to be able to continue with my writing. And that's what I've did. Other people, they might stick with the, the with the ritual they have that they feel comfortable with, no matter what goes on. They, they could be in Antarctica. It's, the polar bears are at the at the front door, and they're like, "I'm going to put this on the posty note, even if this polar bear eats me. I don't care." You know. So you got people that do that, and that's fine too, because in the end, you have to find what's going to work for you. Because what's going to work for you is not always going to work for me or vice versa. But I think when people talk about the writing and their processes and sharing that, it, it helps get people excited about the things they do. Because it's not about putting anything down or, or even raising anything up. It's just really about how different we are, but we're still arriving at the creative product that we wanted. We just got there in a different way. And if we can see that in the creative process, then we should have no problem seeing that in the cultural process or even in a religious process where you can now understand it's not one way to get someplace there could be 20 different ways to get there if we understand that creative wise you have to wonder why don't we understand that in other parts of our human life because if we did we'd have less hatred and less prejudice and less war less aggravation on things that we already know are true so why can't we take it out of this room and put it in the other room well we got locked into someplace we know it's the truth and we go outside and we just, you know, live a lie or live things that make no sense, you know? Well, yeah, that's the thing. That's the key word to me is things that make no sense. I am, I was a bookkeeper all my life. So I've been around numbers. I've been around logic. I've been around the fact, the concept that two plus two is always four and it'll never be five. However, if you allow yourself to not have things that make so much sense all the time, then you will invite creativity and creativity will translate into writing. Um, you know, one of my rituals is to sit under my mango tree, um, even, in, even in the summer, even in the summer in 100 degree weather, it's always 10, 15 degrees cooler under the mango tree. And that mango tree has a lot of um, personal meaning for me because it, it survived Hurricane Wilma in 2005. Back then, it was a two-foot little twig. You know, it was planted in the middle of the yard, and it wasn't growing. It was not growing for two years, three years. It always remained two feet with a few leaves here and there. And one day came Wilma in 2005, and it knocked down the neighbor's 100-foot pine tree into our yard. And the trunk of the tree was all across my yard, into our pool, and, and through the other neighbor's yard. So the tree went through it. Of course, 
it went on top of the mango tree. And all the neighbors got together, how we're going to remove this tree from this yard. Everybody brought their saws and their electric saws, and everybody cut a chunk of the trunk and took it as a souvenir. And lo and behold, when they removed the trunk, that mango tree was intact. <laughs> and, and the reason why is because the trunk did not fall on top of the tree, only the branches and the tree had been lucky enough to to in between the branches of the tree. So when everybody saw that, they said, how, how can this little tree, two feet high, be standing after all this, this monster that fell on top of it? And everybody started talking about that. And I believe that the positive talking, the positive energy of everybody and the praise and, and all that prompted, it gave this tree the push it needed and all of a sudden it started to grow. It went from being a little thing of two feet, not growing, not improving, not going anywhere, to all of a sudden in one year we had a viable tree with fruit. And it grew from there. Now this tree is like maybe 20 feet high and we keep it a little short so that we can get to the fruit, you know, but um, it, it just has this energy of surviving, of surviving the odds and, and I find it, all this energy seeps through it, through, through me and it goes into my writing. So I love to sit under the tree and that's where I do most of my writing. That makes a lot of sense, and it's a, it's a beautiful place and, and, and a beautiful story. I believe that was a Category Five storm too. That's a really serious one. That was that was a yeah. tough one. Wow. That, yeah, that made a lot of damage. Yeah, yes. There's not too many of them that are that that strong, but there's a couple, and that was definitely uh, one of them. That was before that yeah. was before I even moved back to the East Coast. Uh, that was still in Arizona when that happened. In, oh. in, incredible. Well, it, yeah. it really does tell you folks here, we're going to uh, conclude this show here, but it, it reminds everyone if they don't realize this or if they haven't really appreciated it, that somebody that travels from one place to another, especially uh, on the immigrant journey of things, uh, they have to be brave because they don't have a choice they automatically become people of imagination because they need that just to survive in the new place that they're in because it's such a shock. So because of that, we're going to get some incredible creativity. We're going to get some great writing. We're going to get some things that's going to help us understand even if we don't know anything about that person's experience because now they're translating and translating that over to us. So that we can understand and makes us stronger human beings and makes us more aware of the world. If you think about it, because it, I'm not saying it in, in any quaint way, but you could have a woman who is from Argentina, who happens to be a, a Jew, who leaves there that comes to America, comes to Florida, writes a, a form of writing that was created in Japan, haiku, and still do something with us all. That's going to elevate us as better human beings, and we could learn from that. That's how diverse the world can be, and not the diverse word that we keep using politically, which doesn't really mean anything. 
the diversity that I'm talking about are the people that have actually made a journey, took a chance, became something better than they could have been before because they were willing to be brave enough to do that. And that informs us as humans, and that really makes them even, in many ways, greater creativity because they have a story that should be told because without that story, we don't really understand anything beyond our regular living because even when we don't mean to, it's easy to take things for granted because nothing is pushing us and nothing is challenging us. Hell, sometimes nothing is educating us. You ever watch a TV show these days? You won't even learn anything anymore because you already saw it a hundred thousand times already. So this is the time to pick up a book. This is the time to check out with Alexandra Goodwin is doing because that person is going to remind you that you are still alive and that there is still life out there and that there is more beyond the television and that there's even more beyond your own background. There are other people out there that have a story. And even when you were mentioned with the mango tree, it's just something that tells us that we can still be connected to nature. We don't have to climb a mountain and you don't have to save a whale but you can still be connected to nature even in your own in your own home if you're willing to open your mind if you're willing to make things a priority if you're willing to put down what too many people these days put uh, i i say talk about which is this anti-immigrant experience it's just i don't like it at all and i'm always been against it i've always said and and i know you probably wrote it a bit in your book that there's nothing wrong with making your border of your country safe. There's nothing wrong with people wanting to come or maybe even wanting to live in your country. I think that deep down inside, we just need to talk the truth. Let's just do it legally like my own family did and like other people have done. I think as long as we could say that, then we're being respectful and then we're being humanitarian. Anything else really would be about hatred and we don't want to be that kind of country. But we do want to make sure that whoever we bring here, we're we're making sure that it's done legally and and proper. I don't think it's a lot to ask. All the other countries of the world do the same. In fact, many of them are far harsher than America can ever dream to be. And they really do have ideas of hatred. And they really do have ideas of separation. We're really never about that. And I think sometimes our media and maybe sometimes some of our politicians that don't speak well, don't even have good hearts, will we'll, we'll make you believe that that's the case. But we're still a land of opportunity. We're still a land of immigrants. We're still a land of creative people. We just need to be able to speak more uh, of our mind and, and willing to say, hey, don't act that way towards folks that are coming here. Make sure that things are, are done properly and legally. And let's just make sure that we're, we are being humane about it because there aren't... You can look at what's going on in Afghanistan. You can look at a lot of things around the world right now. There's a lot of dangerous places, a lot of dangerous things going on. There are lots of people and lots of places out there that really are willing to accept anybody these days. So let's still be the land that we've always been. There's, there's room here. There's room in our hearts. Let's just do it the right way and, and do it the safe way. I, I don't think it's a lot to ask for. And I think in many ways you, you remind us of that truth and, and that lesson uh, most definitely and I do believe that the law needs to be that there is a law and there is a reason why there is a law 
and the law needs to be respected, it needs to be obeyed, and um, and it it's there for a reason, and it's there mainly also to uh, protect the people of this country, and there is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with saying, let's be, you know, yes, let's invite, let's open up the, the, our doors to people who want to come, but at the same time, let's do it, you know, would you, like, would you let somebody from the street come into your house and you don't know who they are? Probably not. Probably you will want to know who they are first, what they're about, why they are seeking, why they are knocking on your door, you know, and then you let them in. So definitely, I, I do believe that the law is there to be obeyed, not to be broken. And um, and that's the way there is a process, and the process should be uh, upheld. No no doubt. I want to thank you very much, Alexandra, for agreeing to come on here. Uh, most times, uh, the interview process, uh, just doing the arrangements and the appointment and all that can be long and, and difficult. So we were fortunate, again, to find somebody that was more ready to do this and, and had a, a little bit of an easier schedule to be able to actually make it happen. This will happen and come out later in, in September, and I'll let you know and everyone know when I put the second half of September's schedule on because we're about to go into that shortly. So I'm, I'm very happy to, to have someone like you on here, someone that tells us uh, something different about the world, but also in many ways tells us some of the same things that we are as human beings people that can be uh, adventurous and brave and, and, and generous and, and creative and, and still have a, a good time. Even when you come from bad times, you can come to America and, and find good times if you're willing to willing to, to do the work and, and willing to, to keep your mind and your eyes open long enough. And, and that's really like about the place. It really is still a place of dreams, regardless of what the media or the newspaper or, or, or what people can say sometimes. It's all it's yeah. all still here. We just need to believe. And I, I believe yeah. I believe in you and what you've done, and I, and I and I thank you very much for that. It makes makes for one hell of an interview, and, and and you're one hell of a writer. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you very much. I am really humbled, and uh, I am very happy to, for the opportunity to share my story with you and your readers and um, and your listeners. And uh, thank you for being out there. Or watching out for us. Thank you very you got much. It. You have a, a, a great week now and thank you again. Thank you, Mark. Alright, folks, that was Alexandra Goodwin. This is Mark Antin Rossia, the Strength to be Human. This is another one of our interview of artists series that we, we do. We, we don't always do them as regularly as we'd like because of scheduling and the pandemic and meteors and, and hurricanes and <laughs> everything else that seems to, to stop it. Uh, believe it or not, I had someone have a meteor be a problem, a problem because it, it wound up becoming issues with their internet service, and I, it's amazing what could happen out there. But uh, we'll definitely get back with them. All right, folks, God bless. Until next time, Mark Anthony Rossi, Strength to be Human. Thank you for listening. 
Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.